Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, that an organism without a brain can still make rational decisions? That's what the entomologist Tanya Laddie discovered by playing with slime molds. So a slime mold is this gigantic unicellular creature, but it can grow to be many, many meters across. It's bright yellow, and it kind of oozes across the forest floor, eating pretty much anything it can engulf. But if you give them a choice between something that's got a lot of calories, it's really good, versus something that has a lower amount of calories, well, the slime mold will sample both options and then choose the thing that has the most calories. But the cool thing we did is we made one of those options risky. If you put them in that situation, they'll only choose the higher quality risky food item if it's at least five times better than the safe option. Uh, and we had never really seen that kind of problem solving in anything that didn't have a brain before. You, you would never imagine that it could do as many things as it can. Because if you looked at a slime mold, it just looks like mucus. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. That was Professor Laddie from the University of Sydney helping us introduce the theme of tonight's episode, It's Alive! Something I Don't Know is a new kind of game show. Instead of forcing contestants to guess some random fact, we invite contestants to tell us some random fact, to tell us their IDKs, their I Don't Knows. Now, to judge these IDKs and eventually to pick a winner, we've assembled a panel of relatively bright people. Would you please welcome Chris Gethard, Dana Boyd, and Simon Winchester. Welcome to all of you. Uh, Simon Winchester, here's what we do know about you. You are a British-born American, mm -hmm. uh, a geologist and adventurer, explorer, turned journalist and author whose many wonderful books include The Professor and the Madman. Uh, Simon, now tell us something we don't yet know about you. Um, that I'm possibly the first convicted felon you've had. Yeah, because um, we have not had any convicted felons, right. so I'm glad to start off on the right foot. But with I, you, um, yeah. I was arrested in um, Argentina and charged with spying and found guilty after a fairly substantial interrogation and um, put in prison for three months uh, during the Falklands War and was released when the British won the war. The way you say you were charged and found guilty implies that you were not guilty of spying. Do you want to go on the record one way or the other? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clever fellow. Um, moving on, Dana Boyd. We know you as a big-time social media scholar, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research here in New York City. We know that you're the founder of the Data and Society Research Institute. So, Dana, that's the official bio. What are you hiding from us? What don't we know? Well, the last thing you would have imagined me to do, um, thanks to my friends, was to enter a beauty pageant. Um, they thought it would be a really great idea to just see what would happen. And I decided to take them up on it. And it was literally the first and last time that I wore heels because I walked out on a stage and I immediately fell off it. <laughs> You've never worn heels since. No. Have you a entered a beauty idea. pageant since? No, I don't think that's a good idea. Mm. All right, very good. And our final panelist, the comedian Chris Gethard. Chris, we know you from the Chris Gethard show on Fusion, from your off-Broadway show Career Suicide, and your amazingly weird and great podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. We know that you are five foot seven, but your shoe size is eleven and a half. You want to show us the dogs there? That's Good God. Thank you so much. <laughs> Tell us something we don't yet know then about Chris Gethard. 
Um, well, you know, as far as the topic of It's Alive goes, I don't really, I, I can't claim to be an expert on living things, but I, I can really claim authority on undead things. I worked at a magazine about ghosts in New Jersey for many, many years. I've been inside a whole bunch of abandoned mental hospitals, so if you ever need someone to tell you about haunted places in the Garden State, like, I'm a pretty solid resource for that, yeah. <laughs> Great. So tonight's panelists are, if I have it right, a felon, a former beauty queen, and a ghostbuster. So we're <laughs> keeping it classy here with Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great. It is time to play. Uh, panelists, here's how it's going to work. A contestant from the audience comes on stage and will give us a chance to guess their IDK before they present it in full. As we proceed, it'll be your job to poke and prod each contestant. And once we've heard all the contestants, you are going to vote on a winner. Panelists, we will be asking you to judge each IDK on three criteria. Number one, does their IDK surprise you? Is it something you truly didn't know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is the IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, we need just one more thing, a real-time human fact checker. So would you please welcome Jody Avergan. Hi. Jody is a podcast host and producer for ESPN and 538, which is all about using data to explain things. Jody, can you explain what kind of data you'll be using for your fact-checking duties tonight? Yeah, I'll be using um, advanced tools such as Google. Uh, <laughs> and occasionally I may stumble onto an abstract for a scientific journal, but you're not paying me enough to actually access the full <laughs> study. But uh... All right, before we bring up our first contestant, a final word to the panelists now. Listen, it takes a lot of nerve for these audience contestants to get on stage. So while you should be firm in your questioning, I also encourage you to be kind, okay? Especially because before the night is through, you, the judges, shall also be judged when we spin what we like to call the wheel of maximum danger. All right, it's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme you'll recall, is It's Alive. Would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant, Carolina Safar. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, where are you from? What do you do? So I'm a middle school science teacher from New Jersey. Okay, good. Carolina, uh, what can you tell us that you know that you think they don't know? So why would a real housewife be envious of the scarlet jellyfish? Why would a real housewife, proper noun, a real housewife proper on noun. TV... Yep. Real housewife of New Jersey. ...be envious of the scarlet jellyfish? Does it have a cosmetic implication? In a way. But clearly color is involved. Mm. No. Oh. Unless that's a scarlet herring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does it have to do with their ability to attract and keep a man? I know that that was probably everybody's number one guess, but no. All right, Caroline, you want to you tell us the sure. real story? Yeah. So the scarlet jellyfish doesn't need Botox or vitamins or beauty creams or anything like that to stay looking fresh and young. Um, it has figured out the ultimate life hack to stay young by making itself, quote unquote, immortal. Mm. Um, so to understand this, I'll give a little background on the jellyfish life cycle. So most jellyfish start as a polyp. And imagine like a flower made out of jelly material. That's their juvenile stage rooted into the ocean floor. And then they go through a metamorphosis process and turn into the adult version of a jellyfish with the tentacles. And that version is called a medusa. So most jellyfish live maybe a couple days to a few months. But the scarlet jellyfish, if it's getting old or raggedy or it's injured or it's starving it actually will shed its tentacles and it will become this jelly meatball and just sink to the ocean floor. And when it does that, its cells will actually revert back to its youthful cells. It will turn back into a polyp and then it will go through the whole cycle again and become a new, fresh adult, totally unscathed, no age whatsoever. And it's really exciting because even though on the outside we look really different from jellyfish, our DNA is very similar. So if we can find that uh, genetic code that enables the jellyfish to do this, we could possibly program cancerous cells in humans to go back to their early, healthy versions of themselves. 
do the housewives think that if they eat these things, they'll... <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a housewife that injects it somewhere, shoves yeah. it somewhere, using it wrong. Are there other uh, immortal animals? So there are two other species of jellyfish that do a similar thing, slightly different process. They're not technically immortal because if it gets killed outright, it, it can't happen. It's not, it doesn't become a ghost jellyfish and then come back to life. I think you've clearly found a new form of ghost to study. <laughs> I've never felt this dumb in my entire life. <laughs> but you have such big feet. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm just glad I bring something to the table. Before we finish up with Carolina, let's check in with Jody Avergan, real-time human fact checker. Yeah. Uh, immortal-ish jellyfish, legit? So the Medusa stage, which you refer to, caught my ear. And it's true. If you look at this thing, it has a nice Medusa-like mm-hmm. um, vibe to it. Now, it looks to me like this has never actually been observed in the wild, that it's mostly in the lab that people have seen this. But mostly in the wild, these things get eaten before they get a chance right. to fall yeah. to the bottom and rejuvenate. Now, one other thing. What do you know about the work of Shin Kubota. Yeah, Shin so, Kubota. Oh, sorry, yes, please, no. no. You just got so excited he, yeah, about Shin Kubota. Well, he is. Let me tell you. He is the rock star. I mean, you're great, but he is the rock yes. star. He's literally the rock star world. of this. So he's, There's he's, a rock star of jellyfish yeah. research? He's, I, I was going to contact him, and then I got nervous. I don't know. He's. Um, <laughs> In the jellyfish world, you don't just yeah. write Shin Kubota. <laughs> So he's the main researcher of the scarlet jellyfish, and he's like the scarlet jellyfish master. And he also has recorded several songs. Yes, he does karaoke. About jellyfish the karaoke. jellyfish. <laughs> many, of his, many of his songs, which are found in karaoke bars, by the way, are odes to the jellyfish. They include the hits, I Am Scarlet Medusa, uh-huh. Live Forever, Scarlet Medusa, An Eternal Witness, Die Hard Medusa. Tell me you're going to play one. I am going to I play one. I think we one. should. To make your heart melt a little bit, Carolina. I'm swooning. Carolina Safar, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. (laughs) Panelists, later you'll be asked to rank all the contestants uh, and pick a winner. For now, let's welcome our next contestant, Cato Sanford. Hi, Cato. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Hello. Um, my name's Cato. I moved to New York to pursue a PhD in physics. All right. Time to tell us something we don't know, Cato. So here's a question. How would you find a submarine with a sausage? I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> I think about this at least two or three times a week. It's a great question, and I can't wait to see where we all go. <laughs> Does it have to do with sonar in some fashion? No. Okay. Not, maybe very in, no. Sorry, I was trying to. You yeah. really hedged your bet on that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was trying to find the good in your suggestion. No, I know what I am and what I bring to the table on this. <laughs> well, where you come from, sausages are known as bangers. Uh-huh. And depth charges go bang when they're dropped off the stern of a ship looking for submarines. Mm. Could this be the connection? When in doubt, go with word association. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good suggestion, but that, that isn't... Totally wrong. That isn't, that isn't it, but all of these things are involved. Can you tell us the real story? Okay, well, so just the background is that during the First World War, um, like the, the greatest menace to Britain's survival was the German submarine campaign, and so the British government was scrambling for any idea for combating or even just identifying these submarines, locating these submarines. And uh, one suggestion that was seriously considered was to train wild seagulls to flock around enemy periscopes, thereby alerting nearby ships of the, of the potential danger. And to train the gulls, um, what they'd do is they'd get their ships to tow behind them dummy periscopes, and these dummies would be equipped to expel floating food like sausage meat at regular intervals, the theory being that the seagulls would learn to associate periscopes with food and, and congregate around them, and trials got the go-ahead, but in the end it came, it came to nothing for two main reasons. One was the naval commander's uh, thought this was a ridiculous waste of time and refused to assist in the, in the trials, 
Um, and the second reason was when the USA entered the war in 1917, um, they could rethink their military tactics along more kind of conventional lines because they, they had loads more warships. I didn't know seagulls were even smart enough to be trained. <laughs> could you actually get them to repeatedly follow? So there were some promising results from early trials, and one guy said that he could, with the one population of seagulls, in two or three weeks, he could train them to start looking for, the, looking for the periscopes. I mean, how long do seagulls even live? Up to 49 years. Really? Oh, really? Oh. Up to. That may have just been one. <laughs> do you think there was any intentional level of irony in using sausages to defeat the Germans? <laughs> All right, then, Cato, back to your seat. Thank you very much, Cato Sanford. Please welcome our next contestant, actually a pair of contestants, Jessica Ochoa Hendricks and Mandy Holford. Hi there. Uh, first of all, why are there two of you? Uh, so we are co-founding with another founder, a learning games company, and we like to do things together. Profession-wise, what do you are you in the arts? Are you in education? Science. Science. I'm a scientist, and I work in education. Very good. Okay, so Jessica and Mandy, the floor is yours. Tell us something we do not know. So, which creature do you think would be the most deadly? A pit viper. Pit viper. <laughs> a Venezuelan poodle moth. Venezuelan poodle <laughs> there moth. There is no such did, creature. Did you just make that up now? <laughs> <laughs> A, uh, a venomous marine snail. Venomous marine snail. Yeah. Or a death stalker scorpion. I mean, we're clearly getting tricked. Something is wrong with this poodle. <laughs> is it a moth I mean, that looks like a poodle? It's kind of adorable. <laughs> Until <laughs> it strikes. <laughs> Jessica and Mandy, I think we're, we're going nowhere so with our guessing. that was our guessing. red herring. That yeah. was not the right, answer so at tell all. So us, tell was us what we snail? need to know. Yeah. It was the snail. I knew it was the snail. No, you didn't. <laughs> I should have spoken up, but I'm not confident enough. <laughs> How does the snail go after people? Slowly. Well, these venomous marine snails are so deadly that they can kill a 200-pound person in under five minutes. And they were discovered because there were all of these um, Filipino fishermen who would be fishing with nets, and they would scoop up their nets, pour them out, and get harpooned by cone snails. They would die before they could get back to shore. There are 700 unique species so far of these, and they have 200 toxins in each one. And the reason that we are so interested in them is because now scientists are studying them, scientists like Mandy, Mm -hmm. and are finding uh, medical applications. The first drug, actually, Prealt, is a painkiller that's used to treat patients who have HIV or cancer. Chronic pain. Chronic pain, yes. HIV and cancer. It's a pain drug. And the pain is treated in a way that's not addictive at all. And um, last fun fact about this... One of the pioneering scientists in this field, Dr. Toto Oliveira, has lab assistants now whose job, part of their job, is to blow up condoms, uh, rub them on goldfish, and dip them in fish tanks so that they'll get envenomated by these snails. Wait, 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 wait. How do you rub a blown-up condom against a goldfish? Do you take the goldfish out of its environment? (laughs) The snails just need the scent of the fish Uh, to know that it's in the water, and then they'll stick out their harpoon and envenomate the the blown-up condom. Envenomate. It's kind of, we call it milking, milking the snail. Oh, we call it milking the snail. <laughs> Where do these snails live, other than the lab? There's one right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifyingly enough, in pretty much all warm, tropical water, yeah. yeah. They live in coral reefs. Chris Gethard, have you ever milked a snail? I've never milked a snail. <laughs> I will say, this is just another reason why I will, will not ever go in the ocean. <laughs> What are the other reasons? All the other animals that'll kill you when you're in there. But some of them live forever. Yeah, that's not, a, that's, not a good, that's not an encouraging thought. It's full of immortal murderers. The ocean is just full of immortal murderers. And the shells are beautiful. So that's why people die. And the shells are really pretty, so divers try to collect them and bring them up to the surface. So does this, is this harpoon remain fixed to the snail? Or does it, it's a one-time deal, it shoots you... 
you die, it dies too. The, the snail lives. The harpoon are one-offs. It's like a machine gun. Like what? Bullets. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's a snail that can shoot harpoons and yes. replenish itself? Exactly. I'll stick to land. <laughs> so you made an educational board game about these killer snails, I understand, called Killer Snails, Assassins of the Sea? Yes. Yes, yes we do. Yes. 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 I'm also told that a fan of your Killer Snails board game has immortalized these snails in song. Is that true as well? Yes. Yes, yes, yes they have. Can you Is do his it? name Shin Kabuda? <laughs> <laughs> no, her name, her name is not. It's Alyssa Yeager. All right, l- let's hear a bit of that song right now, if we could, please. I have to say, I am, I am so bummed out we've already got a theme song for this show. <laughs> uh, Jody Avergan, yeah. Killer Snails, Assassins of the Sea. You know, one, one, one thing I did find, which is interesting, um, was an article about describing kind of the process of how these snails kill. Um, and this is quoting from the article. They kill by overdosing fish and other creatures with a toxic cloud containing insulin. And the article goes on to write, no other animal that researchers know of except perhaps people, uses insulin to kill like this. <laughs> except perhaps people. I didn't know that so. I started to research whether there are any documented cases of people of murder by insulin. And indeed, there have been a few. Uh, recently, there was a string of murders by a um, rogue nurse at a hospital in Manchester. That could also be a great board game. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I, I came on this show expecting to have a good time, and there's been multiple things that will kill me. Although the board game sounds fun. (laughs) Jessica and Mandy, thank you so much for coming to warn us about killer snails. It is time for a short break now. When we return, more contestants. Our panelists will pick a winner, and then we spin the wheel of maximum danger. If you want to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at tmsidk underscore show. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Tonight's theme, it's alive. Now let's get back to our live audience contestants to learn more strange facts about living things. Would you please welcome Yolanta Komarnitska. Hi, Yolanta. Hello. Would you please tell us your life story in maybe 15 or 20 seconds? I have a PhD in history from Boston University. And I teach history at the University of Virginia. Okay, Yolanta, wow us. So my question to you is this. What would have happened to Winnie the Pooh if he had stolen that honey in the Middle Ages? Mm, If Winnie the Pooh had stolen the honey in the Middle Ages. (laughs) (laughs) He would have been put in a ducking stool. No, that's early modern. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. A ducking stool? You guys are talking as if we all know what a ducking stool is. <laughs> I think Yolanta should explain what a ducking stool is. A ducking stool was a form of punishment and shaming, particularly for women who were uppity, and they would be placed on it and ducked or dunked into water. Oh, we have that at county fairs. <laughs> and the CIA, I think, has something oh, similar. Yeah. I've read, because I do that sometimes... <laughs> That they've found honey in Egyptian tombs and it was edible today. I wonder if what you're hinting at has something to do with this fact I once learned. (laughs) Wow. I feel like the crowd gave me an applause break because I am the dumbest person on this stage. (laughs) 
Uh, Yolanta, plainly, we are pretty worthless up here with this question. What would have happened to Pooh had he been caught stealing honey in the Middle Ages? Well, in the Middle Ages, animals were actually put on trial for crime. So they would be brought into a courtroom before a judge. They'd be given a lawyer. And then there would be a trial process in case they, you know, murdered Chris, being killer snails and everything. Why? (laughs) So we have cases such as a sow and her piglets who mauled and ate a young girl. They were put on trial. The sow was convicted and executed by being hanged like a common human murderer. Uh, The piglets, however, were pardoned on account of their youth. Um, But before we start go disparaging people from the Middle Ages like we like to do, it's interesting that this practice keeps going into the 20th century. And actually, we could say even into the 21st. uh, This past year, Connecticut passed legislation saying that abused animals had the right to a lawyer as legal advocate. Is it ever that the human who has a relationship with the animal is the one in trouble for what the animal does? Or like in like a custodial kind of relationship? They might be fined for it, certainly. Um, Or indicated that they're negligent. Quite honestly, I think everything you've said this evening is complete nonsense. (laughs) Beautiful, but complete nonsense. You know, I think it might seem ridiculous to put an animal on trial, but in Winnie the Pooh's case, he wears a shirt and no pants. (laughs) And I actually think there are some laws being broken in that case. Uh, Jody Evergan... Pigs on trial. Simon thinks Yolanta is a big fat liar. Uh, is she? So this is basically true. Um, and, and I just got a tantalizing glimpse of a 1993 movie starring Colin Firth in which he plays a, a lawyer representing a pig. Yes. Um, one thing, though, that I will quibble with was about the Connecticut bill that um, provides uh animals with lawyers in Connecticut. I mean, from what I can tell, this bill, it provides legal assistance in the case mostly of animal cruelty charges. So it's not exactly the animal that gets a lawyer. It's a state that gets assistance in prosecuting people. They're like a minor who requires someone to speak for them in court. Right, exactly. And so this is usually to prosecute people who've been accused of animal cruelty, if that distinction makes any sense. But, you know. Yolanta, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Our next contestant, would you please welcome to the stage, Clint Jenkin. Hello. Hey, Clint, uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, Well, I work as a market researcher for Campbell Soup Company. And before that, I studied terrorism um, when I got my PhD from University of New Hampshire in psychology. All right, let's hear your IDK, Clint. So which African animal roamed wild across parts of the U.S. in the second half of the 1800s. Dana, I see you thinking hard. Well, I'm just thinking about the obsession with safari that uh, you know, mm. went on for a lot of very powerful people during that period. So who were they bringing back that they thought was cute and adorable? Certainly not the hippos. Chris Gethard, what African animal would you like to see roaming the Southwest, either then or now? Great question. Well, having just seen The Jungle Book, I feel like I am an authority on this, um, watching animals roam. Ideally, I'd love to see a kind-hearted bear who sings songs, swims on his back, and helps you get across rivers. Those are my kind of animals. But I would have to imagine, was P.T. Barnum involved in this? Did he bring something over, and then it got loose, and then it started breeding? He had nothing to do with it. Good guess, though, right? He may have benefited afterwards. Clint, you want to put us out of our misery? Well, when Douglas MacArthur was five years old, he lived along the Mexico border, and he actually chased away a wild camel while out playing with his brother one day. Turns out, 50 years earlier in the 1830s, army officers stationed in the southwest had started speculating about using camels instead of horses or mules in the desert. Not only do they use much less water, uh, they can also carry two or even three times as much weight as your average horse. Eventually, the idea caught on when a Mississippi senator named Jefferson Davis convinced Congress to try it out. So in 1856, the first batch of army camels arrived in Texas. They were soon deployed throughout the Southwest, doing all the things for the army that horses and mules and donkeys did, but even better. It went so well that the army asked Congress for a thousand more camels, but then the Civil War broke out. 
Davis was elected president of the Confederacy, and that, combined with stiff opposition from the mule lobby, was pretty much the end of Wait, the great American said the camel mule lobby? lobby? Hold oh, the absolutely. Phone. They did not want 1,000 camels, which would do the work of 2,000 mules. They did not want that coming to the Big army. Big mule has been a terror on this country <laughs> for many it's, years now. It's time now. for that to end, yeah. And, and so they were executed, all of the camels? Well, so during the Civil War, the Western frontier posts were abandoned as all the soldiers came back east to fight. And so they just turned loose the camels. And they were pretty much forgotten. Some of them were sold off to circuses or mining companies. But they were randomly seen in the wild for the next 50 years. And the last sighting was in 1927. And uh, by then, Congress was actually debating whether to bring hippos to the Louisiana Bayou. Whoa. Is and that true? what were that they true. thinking? There was a hyacinth problem. And so there were these um, guides who had been to Africa and worked in the Boer Wars who thought this, they could bring hippos over, they could put them in there, they'd eat all the hyacinth, and they would be a source of meat. Uh, they were going to call them late cows uh, so that people would actually eat them. Jody, camels, we'll call it humping to America. Uh, what can you tell us? This is true. This is amazing. Um, I, I was, I'm trying to find something about the quote-unquote mule lobby, uh, but there's actually a lot. I just can't tell if everyone... There's a, lot of, there's a lot on Google about the mule lobby and how they killed the American camel, but I can't tell if it's all um, just sourced to this one article. Now, um, but, if I'm, this yeah. is how little I know, but mules can't reproduce, correct? correct. What a bad lobby. Yeah. Of course you're going to fight. You have a product that can't replenish itself like every other animal. It wasn't just mules. The horses and camels do not get along. Yeah. And so everybody in the West has a horse, and so when you start bringing camels around, they start creating havoc. And so they were not well liked by the horse traders either. Part of the mule lobby propaganda apparently was that uh, camels are, don't learn English very well and mules are much better. <laughs> there you go. Clint Jenkins, thanks for the enlightenment. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now, would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Helen Balenson. Helen? <laughs> Helen, what do you do? Uh, so I'm at Yale University. I'm a graduate student in the immunobiology department. Tell us something we don't know. Okay, so fecal transplants are one of the <laughs> sexiest, trendiest medical treatments for anything from infections to obesity to depression and anxiety and Parkinson's. But when was the first documented case of a fecal transplant being prescribed? So first of all, we know how to get Chris Gethard to laugh because all you said was fecal transplant. Yeah. And you crushed that. Help me out. What is a fecal transplant? It's literally what it sounds like. It's the transplant of feces from one individual to another. Whoever the first person was that was like, let's just try this. <laughs> this is a pretty desperate human being. <laughs> or has a particular fetish that we don't know about? Oh, that's a good call. I hate to be deeply serious about this, but... There's this bug called Clostridium difficile. Yes. And I believe that's involved in this story somewhere, isn't it? So yes, I would say fairly recently. Point. Why don't you start us off with when it first happened, then tell us more about fecal transplants, which you've promised are sexy and trendy. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so the first documented case of fecal transplants was actually done by Ji Hong, who was a Chinese doctor in the 4th century. So he would prescribe this to patients who had food poisoning or really severe diarrhea, and he said that it actually helped most people. And it was also used to treat pain, fevers, vomiting, and constipation. Uh, but for a long time, it was basically ignored and forgotten about in the medical field, and it wasn't used until recently, actually. The first paper that came out in recent times was 1958 to treat uh, C. diff. So the way that this works is a healthy donor provides a stool sample, which is blended, and it's then given to the patient. Um, and it, this poop suit... You don't use that blender again, do you? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> That's not your smoothie blender anymore. <laughs> so it used to be... This poop soup used to be drunk in the old times, but now it's delivered... You know, you should talk to Clint over at Campbell's there about a, <laughs> if they're looking for... It also used to be called yellow soup. Uh, to make it a little bit more appealing. <laughs> now it's delivered mostly by enema and nasogastric tubes, so... What? 
So it's either delivered by enema. I heard that part. Or nasogastric tube. That's the one I want to know more about. So that's the tube. They put in... a tube down your nose and they pour someone else's poop down your nose? E- yes. I don't know if you're more if you're feeling more safe on land now, uh, <laughs> but um, so so basically the way that this works is that in the stool, the patient gets a population of bacteria that promote a healthy gut. The bacteria either eliminate or push out the bad bacteria that can cause infections or irritations and things like that. But current research is also showing that a healthy gut may not be the only thing that we're getting out of this. It actually, there's, they've actually shown that fecal transplants can improve mood, so you can become happier, your brain can work better. So analyses of the biochemical signaling from the gut to the brain have shown that our emotional and cognitive centers are actually linked to our guts. Now, do you get anesthesia when they do the nose one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I'm assuming so. I hope so. <laughs> or else you'd be seeing it right there. Chris, would you eat poop if your doctor asked you to? Five minutes ago, I wouldn't have. <laughs> right now, I'm, where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of very interesting things. Um, you can actually take the gut bacteria of an anxious mouse and put it into a normally kind of adventurous, more exploratory mouse and do, the, and do it vice versa. And they actually get the bacterial personalities. It's just like trading by... places, but poop-based. <laughs> Jody, do you want to take a crack at poop soup? Um, I've been using incognito mode to Google about uh. this. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, 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 the first, you know, you, you've talked about the poop being transplanted to someone, but I'm curious about who is the feces being transplanted from? And so when I googled how to donate poop the first uh thing you get is there is a stool donation program in massachusetts mm-hmm. chris you asked about that where do you sign up and um so you know you have to there's a few requirements you get a pre-screen interview you get blood tests you uh they take stool samples not surprising <laughs> and uh donors and this is i'll leave you with this donors are expected to deposit stool at our lab five days a week over a period of 60 days and do you get paid and by the pound or what if you're I a donor, I think, you, I think you just live with the uh, knowledge oh, no. that you've... Well, it, $40, oh, dollars, according, to, <laughs> according to this website. Oh, I guess website. there is a price. Is that per, per that's for the that's, that's, I couldn't figure that out. I think in order to find out if it's per, you know, what the metric is, I have to actually click the, like, sign me up button, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> I think we should stop now. <laughs> Helen, thank you so much for telling us about the long history of fecal transplants. And that concludes our round of audience contestants. Let's please give them all one more hand. Great job. And now it's time for our panelists to rank their favorites and pick a winner from tonight's audience contestants. Remember, the three voting criteria did the contestant tell you something that you truly didn't know? Was it worth knowing? And just how true was it? So, who will it be? Carolina Safar and her immortalish jellyfish? Cato Sanford and his sausage-seeking seagulls? Jessica Ochoa Hendricks and Mandy Holford with their killer snails? Yolanta Komornitska with pigs on trial? Clint Jenkin, humping to America, or Helen Balanson with her longer-than-you-thought history of poop soup. While the votes are being tallied, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll announce a winner, and we'll force the panelists to tell us something we don't know. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. We've heard from some great contestants tonight. If you want to be a contestant on a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. It's time now to announce tonight's three top vote-getters. In third place, with her IDK about poop soup, Helen Balenson. In, in second place, Carolina Safar, the immortalish jellyfish. 
And tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, Jessica Ochoa Hendricks and Mandy Holford with their killer snails. Great job, everybody. Congratulations to Jessica and Mandy. Now, what prize could we possibly give you that's even close to commensurate with the wisdom you've dispensed tonight? Well, do you remember the entomologist we heard from way back at the top of the show? Slime mold is this gigantic unicellular creature. You, you would never imagine that it could do as many things as it can. Because if you looked at a slime mold, it just looks like mucus. That's right. We are giving you your very own extra mucusy slime mold growing kit. Congratulations, Jessica and Mandy. And let's please show our appreciation one more time for all our contestants. And now, for the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we are going to try to humble and perhaps drive to tears these esteemed panelists. It's time for them to tell us something we don't know. Not, however something they've prepared or even thought about. They get to tell us something we don't know on a topic chosen completely at random from what we like to call our wheel of maximum danger. That's right. It is a spinning wheel with 12 topics related to tonight's theme, It's Alive. First off, to help our panelists out just a bit, we are going to team each of you up with one of the top three finishers from our audience contestants. So first, we've got Team Gethard with Chris Gethard teaming up with the killer snail ladies, Jessica and Mandy. We've got Team Boyd with Dana Boyd teaming up with Helen Poop Soup Balenson. And Team Winchester, pairing Simon Winchester with Carolina Immortal-ish Jellyfish Safar. We will spin the wheel to get a topic for each team, and then we'll give all three teams roughly 60 seconds to come up with something we don't know about that topic. And our audience here in the theater will pick a winner. Okay, Jody, would you please give the wheel a spin to pick a topic for first team Gethard? All right, here we go. No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. And it lands on smallpox. Come on. Okay, give it a spin for Team Boyd. Here we go. Rodents. Rodents. And spin it one more time, Jody, for Team Winchester. Here we go. Children. Children. (laughs) Why not? Why not? (laughs) All right, panelists and contestants, put your heads together. We'll give you a minute. Prepare to tell us something we don't know. Yeah, is there a regular box, a large box? There's a chicken box. While the panelists and contestants are putting their heads together, let me say this. We would really appreciate it if you would tell your friends and family and your enemies about this new show of ours. Also, subscribe and give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to be in our studio audience, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, time's up. Let's start with Team Winchester, Simon Winchester, Carolina Safar. If you would, tell us something we don't know about children. So this kind of connects children to rodents, and it connects to Simon's childhood. Um, Often people think that a child's first words are something like mama and papa. Simon had a little bit of a different role model to look forward to. (laughs) My mother took me to, there's a zoo north of London called Whipsnade. She took me along and showed me this amazing animal which looks like an enormous walking shredded wheat. And my mother pointed it out and said, capybara. And she was astonished. She said to her dying day that the first word I ever said, not mama, not papa, was 
repeating what she Unbelievable. said. Unbelievable. Although, if you think about it, it's kind of a combination of mama and papa. Capybara. All right, so Team Winchester, Simon Winchester's first word, capybara, stealing, we should say, the category of the next team to go, <laughs> which was rodents, and Couldn't forcing it into the children category. But we accept your answer. Now we're going to hear from Team Boyd, that is Dana Boyd and Helen Balenson. The topic you got on Jody's wheel was rodents. Rodents. And I actually knew very little about rodents, but luckily I had a brilliant teammate with me. Um, And part of it is that she deeply disturbed me with this interesting question of, can Siamese twins be made? You actually can connect rodents side to side. So if you cut out their side skin and take another rodent who has their side skin also cut out, you can stitch them together and their blood vessels actually become one and they they can run around they live perfectly well they can live for a fair amount of time and it's uh this model of mouse has actually been used to study a lot of diseases that can be to answer the question of can this be transferred by blood or are these cell types moving in the blood or do they stay in organs because things that stay in the organ don't move to the other mouse but things in the blood are are shared Siamese twin mice. It is unbelievable to come up with just like that. Uh, Our final team, I can't wait to hear what Chris Gethard and his teammates, Jessica and Mandy, have to tell us about smallpox. Yeah, I mean, if you thought that mouse thing was impressive, like, you're going to watch. Just stand back. Because it turns out all three of us had a massive knowledge of smallpox. It really was not a matter of do we have anything but what of our many smallpox-related facts? <laughs> do you want to share? These guys have actually prepared three different board games about smallpox. Coming uh, all, soon. Yeah, all <laughs> appropriate for ages three and up. One thing that we settled on was that it actually, um, one of the first ever inoculations was an effort to inoculate against chickenpox. And uh, the, actually one of the first families to participate in this was the Adams family. When John Adams was overseas, Abigail Adams subjected her children to an attempt to inoculate chickenpox, and in the early days, what they didn't realize was it was actually inducing smallpox. It was, it was a bad thing, and all of her children died except for John Quincy Adams, who would later go on to become president himself. So the, the claim from Team Gethard... Out the of, fact. The fact, sorry. <laughs> we, that to be determined, is that, uh, is that Abigail Adams inoculated her children against... Uh, uh, Chicken pox, thus giving them smallpox. Yeah. So just not that I don't trust any of you, but we do have a, a, a real-time human fact checker here, and I, I feel um, we're paying him a little bit. We should use him till the end of the show. Jody? Well, let me, let me go a quick order here. I mean, I'm not going to dispute a story about your childhood. Uh, but it, but Why I did, not? I did check some of the facts, so the, the capybara exists. It's cute. Um, the zoo that you cited exists, and it opened... <laughs> And it opened 10 years before you were born, according to Wikipedia, so I believe that you went to that zoo. Um, now, with regards to stitching two animals together, this is a process called parabiosis, um, and the, it was pioneered by the French zoologist Paul Bert. Typical French. Typical French, yeah. Now, Bert was awarded, in 1866, Bert was awarded the prize for experimental physiology by the French Academy of Science. Abigail Adams. Now, did you get this little bit of knowledge that you so proudly displayed, Chris, uh, from seeing the HBO series about John Adams? No, I'm a very well-read person. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Little known fact. Hey, I was an American studies major at Rutgers, a mid-tier state university. Um, Because there is a little bit of criticism about the way that that series portrayed the smallpox inoculation of Abigail and the children. Mm -hmm. It was sort of played up for effect. I imagine McCullough, he disputes everything. Oh, McCullough. Um, So, you know, I think most of these stories are true. I just, you know, you may have watched one TV show and kind of gotten a little bit of knowledge. Wow. You have a bad fact checker. He's he's tough, isn't he? He's. He's tough. So uh, the HBO-induced, potentially HBO-induced smallpox story versus the stitched-together rats and mice versus the childhood capybara. Uh, We will now pick a winner, and you, the live audience, will help us do this. Now, keep in mind the criteria. Did they tell you something you did not know? Was it worth knowing, and was it true, or at least true-ish? 
Okay. So for our live audience, you've already got the menu on your phone, so vote now. Will it be Team Gethard, Team Boyd, or Team Winchester? All right. The live voting has closed, and I have been handed the results. In third place, um, with a, a rather paltry, I hate to say it, 19% of the vote, um, but we love you, Team Winchester. <laughs> I just want to state that this really matters to me. <laughs> In second place, with 31% of the vote, Team Gethard, which means our winner with 50% of the vote, Team Boyd, stitching together rap. That's our show tonight. Thank you so much to our panelists, Chris Gethard, Dana Boyd, and Simon Winchester. Thank you to all our contestants. And especially thanks to all of you for coming to play. On next week's show, our theme will be things that go in your mouth. Our panelists, former White House chef Sam Cass, happiness guru Gretchen Rubin, and one-third of the fabulous Emanuel brothers, doctor and medical ethicist Zeke Emanuel. When Nixon was preparing his trip to China, the Chinese served the advance crew um, something called a salute to spring, and that included um, deep-fried sparrows, and uh, they weren't into that. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in partnership with The New York Times. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to Dan DeZula, Jolenta Greenberg, and to Dan Schreiber, our transatlantic game doctor. Thanks to the New York Times, especially Charles Duhigg, Kinsey Wilson, Samantha Hennig, Lisa Tobin, and Diantha Parker. And to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find it at nytimes.com IDK. You can find us online at tmsidk.com, also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>